Remembering the great DJs of radio, it's Radio Greats with the live Luke. Kicking off this season of Radio Greats on what is World Radio Day is a DJ who was the kin of Early Breakfast on Radio 1 for the best part of six years. He has also worked on stations from Invictus in Kent, GNR in Newcastle, and also a stint as breakfast presenter on Capital Gold. And I look forward to learning a bit more about him in this edition. But before we start, let me say a big radio welcome to Adrian John. Hi, Luke. Great to be with you. Hello, Adrian. Fantastic, in fact. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, well, that's great to hear. uh, I have to start by asking, how are you today? Really good. Considering what everyone's going through, I'm mucking along quite nicely, thanks. And yourself? Me? Oh, I'm I'm doing... uh, not bad myself uh, now and then, uh, and just loving life to the fullest. So, Adrian, during the 80s and 90s, you were one of the most recognised voices on the radio, presenting both local and national shows. But going back to the beginning, how was it you developed the bug for radio? Well, I heard the, the pirate stations, Luke. I, I heard it all happening. I was very young, and I was amazed at how this music was having such a profound effect on everybody including the adults who you know frequently these were adults who were getting over their traumas from the wars so on and so forth and the berlins and the mantovanis and all that stuff and then all of a sudden we had all these rock and pop bands and it was just ripping and exciting and the feeling that these people were out there doing something that was a bit naughty uh staying all this great new music was so inspirational. I think that was a huge motivator for me going forward. So the Pirates uh, was how you developed the radio bug. And um, it was a decade of various jobs and spinning the discs on the QE2 and uh, doing st- work for in-store radio that uh, you get your big break with BBC Radio 1. How did that gig come about? Well... It was uh, so easy, considering really that going back across the history of my trying to get that far, it had been kind of a stormy time because you mentioned the QE2, Luke, and I was on the QE2 and it had a serious storm. It was heaved to all night. We were stuck on the ship. And then the next, well, after a few days, actually, uh, we had the SAS come out and, and they came down to the ship by parachute to rescue us all. So that was a kind of a fearful time. Um, and there was other storms, like there was the great storm. It seems to have gone through my radio days quite a lot. But yeah, top sharp. I was in the uh, big store there, uh, underground at Oxford Circus, as we used to say, broadcasting to all those, uh, I think it was 250,000 people a week coming through the store in Oxford Circus because it was massive. And it was a big break. I was doing promotions and There was a a wonderful Radio 1 DJ, you'll remember, Peter Power. And Peter um, heard me in the store, and I didn't realise what he'd done, but he'd been to one of the executive producers of Radio 1, lovely Doreen Davis, and he said, you've got to hear this this DJ. He's um, quite something, from what I gather. And so the next thing I am aware of is I'm sitting in my studio one day and this, and she's smart. She's a little older than me. Uh, and of course, I wondered what she was doing because she didn't look like the typical Topshop customer. And she said, 
Adrian John? I said, yeah. She said, how'd you like to be on Radio 1? Whew. And, and that was amazing. She said, what we could do, we could start off, you know, come in and see us. But first of all, I think we'll get you doing a few trails on the station, you know, maybe uh, some traffic flashes and things like that. And then, you know, see how it goes from there. So I kind of had my audition on Radio 1 by literally doing work on there. And uh, I, I felt I was so lucky and uh, so privileged. And, and that's how it started on Radio 1. Adrian John. Radio 1. So it's New Year's Day, 1983. You make your Radio 1 debut with a weekend early breakfast. What was that first day like and were you nervous? You know, the night before, I just remember, oh, I've got to go to bed early. I've got to sleep. I've got to get myself, you know, I've been psyched up to this. Yeah. So when I did eventually go into Radio 1 that next morning, I was exhausted. <laughs> but I got through. I had a great producer called Roger Pusey, um, lovely man, and uh, he was very supportive. And I was finding my way through. I was trying to do everything just right and perfectly. And it wasn't really helping the development of my style. And I didn't realise it, but in the background, the management were getting a little bit worried. Oh, dear, is he going to come up to standard? I was talking to Johnny Beeling, a controller, later on, and he said to me, yeah, we, we went through that phase, but all of a sudden, it's just like you kind of, whoop, you took off. <laughs> you know, you suddenly started doing something which really sounded fun. And uh, the audiences were very big. I mean, you think for radio to get a big audience is quite a difficult thing. Television struggles, but even in those days, doing the... I started off doing a weekend show, but by the time I was doing the weekday morning show, I was told we were getting something like 11 million people uh, listening to the program, which is phenomenal. We didn't have a lot of competition. So it was an amazing feeling. And I remember Doreen Davis said to me, it's a very important job, you know, you know you've got. You're, you're waking up the country. And, and those words never left my mind. I had this vision of every part of the country and every little corner and the towns and the cities and trying to imagine what people were doing and how they were struggling to get up from the alarm clocks going off and heading off for work or going to school and doing paper rounds. And I just really felt I had an affinity with them. So I became very engaged with the process of doing a radio show and extremely fond of the listeners themselves because I used to get so much mail. And I felt we were kind of in it together because <laughs> I had that struggle getting up in the morning sometimes. As well. Adrian John. Six o'clock and it's Valentine's Day. Good morning. Thursday. Lots and lots of messages from loved ones to you coming up in a moment. Shaking Stevens, so where's the monkey? So the weekend breakfast show only lasted two months because on February the 28th, you get promoted uh, to the weekday lineup and begin your six-year stint as early breakfast presenter. Now, I have to ask, was it intended for you to host early bre breakfast on the weekday? Because... Wasn't it um, always syndicated from Ray Moore's Radio 2 show? Oh, that's it. Yeah, I think that we kind of split a bit more from Radio 2. Um, and 
and yeah, Radio One had a little bit more uh, opportunity to broadcast for longer, I think. But in fact, uh, just before me on that early show had been Mike Smith. And so he'd actually started that. And then I took over from Mike, uh, who did a, a variety of things. I think, I think initially he might have gone off to commercial radio for a while. And then he came back to Radio 1. So, yeah. Um, but once I was in there doing that early show, uh, after getting used to the feel of it, uh, I really started to make it my own and go a bit crazy on air and do some silly things and some very sensible things and had a lot of fun. So the first show, February the 28th, weekday mornings, say hello to Adrian John. What was your memory of that first show? Oh, the first show was, was nerve-wracking. Uh, I was pretty tired because I hadn't slept much the night before. Very exciting prospect being on Radio 1. It was a dream come true. In more odd, in a way, because I'd done things by a funny route, although Radio 1 didn't even realise it at the time. Uh, what had actually happened, such an enthusiast for pop radio and for music generally, uh, and I kind of got attached to Top of the Pops as a concept and really wanted to get along there. And I was a little bit of a so-and-so because what I did is I so much wanted to be on it and tickets were what waiting lists of years. So I kind of made myself look like a person who should be working on Top of the Pops, stuck on some headphones and found I could just walk through into the studios without anybody stopping me, <laughs> which is a terrible admission. And you'd never get away with it today. But as a result of my doing that, not only did I manage to get on top of the hops quite a lot dancing, but nobody me knowing that I was going to one day be on Radio 1. But also one, one thing that came about was that the producer of the programme saw my dancing and some of the incredible clothes I was wearing and badges all over me and being a bit crazy. And he liked it. Around, he'd often make sure that I was standing in a certain position where the camera's got a glance of me. And I, and I remember there was one top of the pups where right at the end, I was standing there uh, all the time the writing was going up, just me dancing about with all these badges on. Anyway, so it, I digress a bit. But anyway, going, you know, onto Radio One, therefore, was just really what I wanted. It was the dream come true. And I took it very seriously. I was trying so hard. In fact, I was trying too hard. I think it is possible sometimes to try too hard. But once I began to chill, I was getting some great advice from some of the other people on the station, the very supportive, Steve Wright, for example. And uh, we talked about that. And Steve suggested, you know, that you've got to get to the point where you don't care. <laughs> and I knew what he meant. He wasn't talking about a kind of an arrogance, uh, sort of a hostility. He was t talking about go as some something you had in you that was trying to do things too perfectly. And I started to ch chill. Uh, it was great. And, you know, lots of the presenters, uh, Simon Bates, and DLT, Gary Davis, all the people who are around me all the time, they're all so supportive and uh, and of course I had a great chum on Radio 2 as well I got to know Ray Moore very well in the mornings on Radio 2 and uh, it was just like coming into the family um, and, and getting some wonderful examples of professional radio from lots of talented people no it's not working 
I'm breathing hot air onto the BBC ticker tape machine to defrost it. See, the weather's meant to pop up just here, but it can't come up because it's all frozen. It's so cold this morning. I'll keep breathing on it and see if we can get it working for the next link. It's three minutes past six. Here's Cliff. And coming into the family with Radio 1 um, with the early breakfast show, because uh, it's worth mentioning that you invented the huh, not Simon Mayo. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, seven o'clock. Huh, and uh, I had these desires to make noises it was kind of in my person i i kind of always wanted to shout out something i remember when i was doing the mobile discos i think before i was on radio one and there was johnny johnson and the bandwagon uh blame it on the pony express where the the lead singers all the way through was going I, I, I used to do this at disco. I got addicted to it. So obviously once I was on Radio 1, I didn't have a dance floor in front of me. But the huh wouldn't go. So I just became quite strict about it and just decided I was going to try and just do it at 7 o'clock in the morning at a particular time to match up to the GMT time signal. So when the final beat came, it went huh. And I used to dedicate it to people. And people used to write in because they used to love the her. And, of course, whoever followed me would want to do it too. So Simon Mayo, when he was doing the programme, and occasionally Mike, yeah, it was it was good fun. And uh, little things like that, uh, word of the day, I started doing uh, in, in those days. There was a different approach to traffic. I tried to do things in a way where I really thought about how you know, how can I put a put it across in a way that people will enjoy and find entertaining. Uh, so much so, I think one day uh, there was a news story and they were talking about tennis or I think it was tennis. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm going to put a little bit of music as we come out of the, the news, <laughs> a little bit of background music. And, and, and the news editor went mad at it. You know, now, of course, you can't listen to Radio 1 without music all over the news. But for, for in this time, it was pretty groundbreaking. And I even threw them one day by putting the sound effect, I think, of the tennis underneath the person talking about it, which really blew their mind. So I was a little bit of an antagonist, but I wasn't doing it in a, in a destructive way. It's just I wanted to, to stretch out more. I wanted to play. I wanted to have some fun. And I wanted the listeners to be involved in that and, and get to know that there were some quirky things going on. So as my confidence built, I, I did more and more like that. And it, it, was, a, it was very cathartic, really. It, it, it helped me get rid of a side of my personality that, <laughs> that wanted to muck around a lot. <laughs> Good morning, it's 5.30. Welcome to Radio One's World of Music. Across the UK, Britain's favourite Radio One. Adrian John. Well, here we are again. How are you feeling this morning? Did you have a rough night last night? Tell you what, while you're listening to this record, I'll nip outside and make you a nice cup of tea. Do you have sugar? One lump or two? None? Okay. Building on your confidence and um, also being more chilled out in that and uh, being part of the Radio 1 family. Um, you also hosted uh, editions of Top of the Pops and, as well as that, the Radio 1 road shows. So what were they like? Wow, do that. Um, and I think what helped was that I'd done so many live things my time, uh, shows and gigs and mobile discos in the early days, and I was 
much the same with mobiles. I used to have lots of fun, do lots of games with people, uh, be quite creative in the entertainment. So once I was on the roadshow, it worked very well. And I think there was a relatively small number of Radio 1 DJs doing a week on the roadshow. And I got my own week each year and uh, had loads of fun. Very exciting days. For me, I was very influenced by all the people around me. There was a team on the road who were great fun. Uh, so there was lots of partying here and there. But uh, the, the, the satisfying feeling of getting up on the stage and getting off the stage and coming on the, uh, down to the audience at the front there and, uh, and mixing with them was, was just amazing to see hundreds, if not thousands of people waving their hands and trying to reach out. I'm sure I didn't deserve this. Uh, we were riding on the back of fantastic music and of a big name. Radio One was a big, powerful um, part of people's lives. And I was very lucky to, to get that. I didn't kid myself that this was me especially, but I was very fortunate to be in a position where I could enjoy that. And Radio One has always sounded like a lot of fun. What was your highlight with Radio One? You know, there was one day I had trouble getting into Radio One. It was the day of the great storm they called it the it was a hurricane wasn't it and it affected the mainly uh, well, different parts of the country but the part i lived in at the time which was the west side of kent it was particularly badly affected and all the forests and trees came down all over the place and that morning i was woken really early two in the morning and i could hear this wind going outside i could hear this terrible noise and banging and then eventually as I was lying there, I suddenly realized, hang on a minute, what's going on? The, I, I put on a light so that I could see what was going on in the, in the house uh, because I was walking around a bit. There was windows rattling and doors banging and things. And the light started dimming and going on and off like the house was haunted. And I didn't realize it, but what was happening is that a little way away, there was a power transformer for the area, and that was breaking down with trees falling on it and things going wrong. So now the power was going on and off. I I decided I was going to head off to Radio 1 earlier, um, but I didn't get very far because I lived in the woods. So I only got a couple of hundred yards, and I couldn't go any further. There were trees lying in front of me. I thought, oh my God, I'm sitting here in the forest and there's trees coming down so i quickly tried to flip the car around but the wheels at the back went down into the mud and i started to head back and there were now trees behind me as well so i thought oh gosh fortunately i had a big torch with me and i grabbed it and just deserted the car and started running and jumping over the trees and looking around shining the light of the branches just so that if there's anything coming down i'd have a chance of getting away from it and I managed to get home and away. There was trees all over the driveway. And I managed to get up to the side of the wall of the house and press myself flat against the wall in case anything came down. Um, and I, I wasn't able to get to Radio 1, clearly. But what I did, I thought, how can I communicate them? Because I, strangely enough, I had one of the early mobile phones. But I left it in the car because oh. I was the panic. So, so what I did was I thought, I've got an old CB unit somewhere. Where is that? And I dug out this old CB unit. Uh, I connected it to, because all the electricity had gone off, and the water, 
and the gas and the phone, everything had gone off. And I connected it to some batteries I had. And I think it was a spare car battery or something like that. And I put the CB unit on it and I thought, now, how am I going to get a signal out? Because it's only got a little area. It's a handheld unit. I thought, I know, I'll get the TV aerial, cut that back, poke it in the hole so that the TV aerial on the top of the house will take my signal a long way. So I did that. And lo and behold, I was able to talk to a lorry driver who was stranded on one of the dual carriageways nearby. And I said, you you must do me a favour. You try and get in touch with Radio 1 for me, would you? Because I'm not going to make it to my programme this morning. And he said, actually, I'm only yards away from a phone box in a lay-by. And I said, well, would you call this number, please? Ask for the duty manager and say that Adrian Johns got caught in the storm and he just can't come in. Uh, and lo and behold, that message got through. Mike Smith managed to get into the studio to join my part of the program. And he mentioned on air that he'd, they'd had a message from me. Uh, and of course, when the daylight came up, because I used to drive in the very early mornings, I could see nothing but devastation. Uh, and I was lucky to be alive and I was in shock and there was no way I was going anywhere because whichever direction I walked from my home there were trees down in every direction in a forest so I was stuck there for ages and uh, it was many many days weeks in fact before all the services were back on again so that was a pretty amazing time at Radio 1 and you know, that, that was exciting, but not the right kind of exciting. In terms of the the shows and the music, I don't think any day was really boring. There was always so much fun going on. And there were so many associated things we used to do. Uh, promotions, interviews. Uh, I did a spell on Jukebox Jury, uh, which was brought back with Noel Edmonds. And I was the guy out going around the beaches interviewing people on the beaches to see how they felt about the song. So I was doing a bit of TV. I got on Saturday's Superstore with Mike a couple of times and I did Top of the Pops, you know, here and there. So it was all going really well with plenty of being busy. But the only problem was I was waking up so early in the morning that I was always very, very tired by the middle of the day or the early afternoon. So that in the end did impact me so much that it started to take some of the fun away towards the latter stage. A guy called Mark says his pet hate on the motorways is people who keep the fog lights on when it's not foggy. He says you can't see anything past the vehicle because the lights dazzle you. And it's difficult to tell when they're braking as well, and particularly if it's raining. So do remember that when you've come out of the fog, do remember to switch your fog lights off, won't you? Here comes a flash. Radio 1 Hayden Thomas in BBC Travel says there's been an accident on the M1 motorway southbound uh, on south of the approach. It's 6.30. Monday morning, 24th of October. Radio 1 Here's Rod McKenzie. Two well, women September in their 20s. September 29th, 1989, you present your final Radio 1 show. And I have to ask, was it tough to say goodbye to a station like Radio 1? Yes, I didn't want to. Um, but the circumstances were that I'd had a bit of a shock um, because a very good friend of mine, Ray Moore, on Radio 2, had died. And he and I were like buddies, you know, very, very close. Uh, and... I used to sometimes take him in in the morning and bring him back sometimes at the end of the day. 
uh, uh, he and his partner and mine would go away on on uh, little days out here and there, or we'd nip over to France and have some fun. And so we spent so much time talking and being together that when Ray got cancer and died, it it was it was heartbreaking. And um, yeah, and I and I th- thought about my life a little bit more then. I thought. You know, where am I going with this? This is quite taxing on me. Uh, plus, I had a, a great little lad, a boy, um, had a son called Daniel, and and he was very, very young, and I wanted to see a bit more of him too. So, yeah, I made the decision to go over to commercial radio. I got off, offered a, a, a really good um, deal with them, uh, which, which went in very well uh, to begin with, but commercial radio itself was going through a lot of changes. So as time went by, I moved around a bit and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it was Invicta. First of all, that was a great station, great team. And then eventually I think I went up to the North of England to Newcastle and, and worked with a team up there at magic. And it, it, I was there for five years and what a, what a great time I had, what a lovely part of the world. And, uh, yeah, I did uh, did other commercial stints. I did a bit bit of BBC local radio, uh, Radio Kent. I did a phone-in show there in the evening, Adrian John's Nine to Midnight, which was really where I wanted to go. Phone-ins for me are just amazing. More music! Young boys. Okay, there we are. That's by Kate Severano. Hey, why you know? Hey. Well, I, I, I have to go back um, to where you said about um, getting the contract to commercial radio and mm-hmm. talk about Invicta, um, because how different was it to go more local after six years of being a national voice? Yeah, it was quite a surprise because the station was doing very well in the southeast very popular in kent um and they had a, a highly controversial and popular uh phone-in show in the evening um and and it was it looked like it was all things going well for the station but we went into a recession <laughs> and it pretty much made life very difficult for the commercial stations as well so it was a bit of a shock because although there was lots of opportunity to do some good radio. The station eventually wasn't so well resourced and things were getting a bit tough uh, for the station. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 they didn't quite have the backup. I mean, for example, if I did a Radio 1 roadshow, wow, you know, you had Smiley Miley, you had all these fantastic vehicles, you had this huge resource and this history and we'd be right up there on the stage looking like a concert that had come into into the town but the scale of things on the station i went to in kent were very much smaller uh, very very uh, moderate minimal equipment without the sense of big and showmanship and and i missed that i i really did miss the going out there and making a big noise in, in a way that people really wanted to come along and see. So, um, and you also mentioned about um, going up to the north and working on GNR and, um, and Magic and then coming back and doing um, the phone-in show on Radio Kent. And the, the thing I wanted to mention, cause you, mm. you mentioned about phone-in shows today, they're different 
you know, different standards. Would you say it was more similar to, should we say, a Jimmy Yun or a Brian Hayes technique? I told you earlier about how I tend to get up to lots of antics. And, and I was certainly doing this on the phone-in show, but it was almost like there was different parts of me coming out. So one minute I could be talking to people about things that were incredibly deep, sad tragedy in people's lives. I was really happy to have those people on the program. Um, I noticed initially there was a hesitancy in radio to have people on for too long who were very sad or dealing with tragedies and problems. It wasn't very popular on the radio. But I really wanted to listen to these people and I wanted to understand it. And something of my my wanting to hear that came out and the audiences liked it. So the audiences went sky high with me doing that. But it wasn't exclusively that. I would do that kind of thing and I would have a section in the program where I was doing it. I wouldn't denote it. I wouldn't say we're going to be doing this kind of stuff in a certain time. It would just evolve. And then what I would do is I would sense, right, okay, let's start coming out of this gently and let's start having a little bit of fun further on. And then I would turn it into a crazy time with wind-ups and other stuff. So all of it was a little bit of adventure. And the public, I think this is what worked for them, they didn't know what was going to happen next. And that's, I think, one of the strengths of radio. I think we make a mistake in radio to think that we're going to spend half the program telling people what's coming. But actually, the message, I don't know what's coming, is much more powerful. Across the county, across the day, on 96.7 in the west and 104.2 in the east, this is Radio Kent from the BBC. When we talk about how personal radio can be, and also with phone-ins and the people you were speaking to, was there ever a challenging moment you had when you picked up that phone and spoke to someone? I don't know if it was the most challenging, but it was the it was the time I most felt, gosh, it makes me feel sad just thinking about it. A, a little boy came on the programme and he can have only have been seven or eight. And I can still hear his voice today. And he wanted to talk to me and and I started to talk to him and I realized he was very, very sad. And I said, what's happened? And he started crying and he told me that he just lost his brother. Oh. His brother had died. And, and I stayed with him and talked to him for a few minutes and something inside me came through that I didn't really realize had happened. I didn't realize that I was going into a mode of compassion and care that doesn't normally get attributed to men. Actually, men get a terribly bad press. There's loads of fantastic, sensitive, caring men out there, but uh, they're all conveniently ignored. But anyway, this part of me came out and I got really into trying to help this boy in a kind of a supportive way, letting him talk. And I remember then feeling that in the rest of the program, but I kind of lifted myself out of it once the once we'd moved on. But then the next day, we got a telephone call at the station. There was somebody quite urgently wanting to speak to me. And it was a lady, um, a psychotherapist. And she said, I heard you on the program last night. 
And I just want to let you know that you should be a psychotherapist. I said, well, I haven't had any formal training of anything like that. And she said, no, that's the point. She said, but you're born to be one. What I heard last night was just you did everything absolutely right. So that was the beginning of me uh, going into formal training for counseling and psychotherapy. And I started to come away from uh, radio, uh, which is a sadness in one respect, because I'd still like to be part of it. But my life is also very complete working with people who are in very difficult stages of their life and people who are trying to overcome problems and disasters and trying to find themselves underneath all that clutter of memory so loaded with other people's opinions of us that we sometimes don't even know who we are. So, yeah, so 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 that's good. I'd, I'd be fascinated to know how that would work on radio today to have a, a presenter who was also a psychotherapist. But, yeah, it's um, it was a very exciting time, and it was one of the things I think I was very grateful to Radio Kent because it was the space they gave me to do that kind of thing, just gave me complete license to do what I wanted. They didn't once tell me not to do anything I did, and yet I was doing very diverse things on air. And for me, it changed my life later. So, yeah, it meant I, I left radio. Across the county, across the day, on 96.7 in the west and 104.2 in the east, this is Radio Kent from the BBC. But um, it, it didn't stop there just yet. There was something in between. There was something in between because 2000 comes along and um, yep. this time Invicta have now been uh, revamped into Capital Gold and uh, they need a brand new breakfast presenter and uh, they come to you. My training as a psychotherapist was going on simultaneously to me doing some radio. So, yeah, and certainly that, that affected uh, part of my time. But anyway, yeah, uh, Capital Gold was um, superb yeah great great station um and loads of fun some wonderful fun presenters uh and news readers tremendous team and uh we really swung along there and 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 did some great radio so yeah that that was a good time and, uh, and i'm very grateful to the station uh, for you know, for letting me have that breakfast show, it it, it worked well, uh, and in fact, breakfast shows suited me. I like getting up early in the morning. It wasn't always easy, as anyone knows, but I did used to find I gave of my best with regard to pop radio early in the morning, and I gave my best for the more thoughtful, considered approach to life later in the day, in the evening. Um, so, so I was kind of one or the other. I wasn't doing too much in the middle. Hello, <laughs> 29 after 7, this is Capital Gold for breakfast, where we're all getting fit this week, aren't we, Joe? We certainly are. We're not mucking about. We're going to take on the challenge. A lot of people wait till the summer before they start exercising, going out on their bicycles. And <laughs> Today, we've done a recruitment drive around the building. We've bamboozled people. We've gone up. We've hit them around the head. We've said, come on, think fit. 
get healthy. And so far, from an entire staff of 100 people, we have managed now to secure uh, a guaranteed attendance today of two people. On the Adrian and Josie bike ride. On the Adrian and Josie bike ride, which will take in all the coastal regions of Kent. Uh, we won't be able to go on the motorways, obviously, because it's not allowed, but we'll certainly travel around every cycle path in Kent. Well, we, we aim to do the complete. We've estimated about 730 miles altogether, and we're going to start off at 10 o'clock this morning, and we aim to be back by midnight. That's right, isn't it? I think, yeah. And no. I've got lights. I hope you have too. Yeah, you've even got knee pads. And reflective safety gear. <laughs> yes, I know. So, uh, Josie had one knee pad left, not two. She wanted to include me in this, but she only had one knee pad. And we could only find one place to put it. It's Capital Gold. We'll tell you more about our exciting venture later on today. If you want to sponsor us, there's still time. Uh, 29 minutes to 8. Capital With Breakfast Presenting, and I've always, I always ask every breakfast presenter this who I've had it on, what do you think makes a very good breakfast show? I don't know how any presenter works on any radio station without having a basic love of people. If you don't love people, what are you doing that for? You're connecting with human beings. And part of that love, part of that empathy, is understanding how rotten life can be, how tough it can be, how, uh, how worrying, how stressful. You know, and if, if a radio presenter doesn't get that, then you know, how are you going to be able to, at times, talk in a way that makes has a resonance with people of all different types. So that was, for me, the basis of it. I used to look upon getting up and doing a breakfast show as being an occasion that I had a duty. I, I imagine people in their bedrooms. I imagine the alarm clocks going off. I also imagine the people who are going off to work much earlier than that, because even at four in the morning, you'd find the roads were absolutely packed with cars, with people going to early morning starts. So I knew there was loads of pe people out there. And, and I wanted to give them something different. I wanted to give them something that wasn't just, uh, repeating the same old catchphrases and, and the same old station IDs. And that was very much possible during the times that I was on radio. But what I saw happen later on, as I started to back away from radio, I saw radio becoming much more formatted and a lot of presenters, not all of them, but a lot of them were being told, You've got to say this, you've got to say that, you've got to announce the song this way, you've got to put these words in. And they started to dehumanise the presenters. So there wasn't as much for the audience, if you like, to grab hold of, to cuddle. They became more like a talking clock. And there were times that even I did that under the pressure, but it just didn't feel right, you know, and that was obviously part of my journey to move away from radio. And, uh, yeah, the... The secret with breakfast is be humble, be absolutely committed to making life feel that little bit better. Don't be afraid to be touched by the sadness of life now and again. And let people know that, you know, your life isn't all about jumping into fast cars and going on lovely holidays and going in your garden and boasting about how many flowers you've got or trees you've got when there's people sitting in their little tiny bedsitter flat six floors up and they haven't even got anywhere to put a little pot outside in the daylight. And don't forget what we are in this country. We're a mixture of many different types of people. And I think to connect on that human level is doing a much greater service to radio 
uh, than perhaps a lot of stations are able to do with their formats, which kind of create this hysteria, which a lot of it is very false. Anyway, this uh, lady called uh, Josie said, Hey, Aid, when are we going to see you on Top of the Pops 2? Since you were on a whole load of Top of the Pops in the past. Uh, it's true, I was. I was on about five or six of them, I think. Uh, and I, I frankly, uh, I'm just dreading the day when they find it and they play it because I'm just going to be hiding under something. It just makes me cringe every time I see it. Four minutes to a capital goal. Maria, uh and became a psychotherapist um, after doing work for Saga Radio and then also a little stint with UDJ Radio. Uh, but with this change of career and how you talk about um, the importance of radio being one-to-one, trying to make it all personal, could we maybe see Adrian John return to the airwaves soon? Yes, uh, there was another little station in there, by the way. There was Big L. I did a spell at Big L with Mike Reed and David Hamilton and lots of other great people, Steve Garlick, uh, all just uh, so many great people. And it was actually while I was doing that show that I was also in the background training up to be a psychotherapist. There was me studying in the daytime after doing a show in the morning. And Mike Reed would be working very hard on his projects and we'd both be sitting there like a couple of students <laughs> in the middle of the day. Uh, but, 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 but yeah, there, there, there is, there is a, an opportunity for radio. I have been asked to be on a station. Um, I don't want to waste anyone's time and I don't want to fit too much into a format. It would have to be the kind of radio where they really want to find out what is possible in terms of engaging with people on a human level. And I, and there's not many places that want to do that. That's the problem. Uh, every station gets its sound. Sometimes people working on radio stations listen to their own station too much, so they all end up sounding the same, which isn't very helpful. But I, yeah, I mean, the opportunity, Opportunities are there for anyone now doing radio, aren't they? Because you can go on the net, you can do your own station, you can go onto was it SoundCloud and places like that and do things. Yeah, but I, I'm keeping an open mind and I'm just just looking to see what happens. It, it won't be the end of the world if I don't, but I'll still be quite happy doing what I'm doing. But I think I will probably at some point want to experiment and incorporate some of what I've learned and put it back into a radio environment. I think that will be helpful. Well, I have to ask Adrian, who was your radio great? <laughs> when I first went to Radio One, uh, yeah, the executive producer said to me, who's your favourite DJ? And I don't know whether I was born to be a politician or a diplomat or something, but I said to her, and it was true. I said, well, you know, each one of your presenters has something about them that's got them on the radio. They're doing, each of them are doing something good. And I'd like to understand what it is that each one of them do. So I kind of like this DJ for this, this DJ for that, that DJ for that. Um, and she loved that answer. Um, and I, and I think that's where I stand. I mean, there are, there are some people, uh, as a friend, personal friend, Mike Reed, has been a buddy of mine for many years. I was even in the studio with him when that 
fateful day when the relax song didn't get played. It was just the two of us in there and we sat there and then couldn't believe the reaction just because he didn't play a song. Um, Mike and I have kept in touch over the years. We've done more radio together. Uh, a good, pres- I mean, a brilliant guy, brilliant guy as a friend. David Hamilton's a lovely guy, although I didn't work with him on, on BBC, but I did get a, a spell with David on uh, Big L. Uh, and yeah, I mean, all, all through really people like DLT was a great chum. Uh, Simon Bates was tremendously supportive and uh, I still speak to Simon Bates from time to time on, online, uh, keep in touch with him. So there's so many people I admire and, and it's, it would be wrong just to single out one. I just... I just think that there's so much variety. There's something there for everybody. And, and that's, you know, that's a great thing to be able to say. Well, Adrian, John, thank you ever so much for joining us on this edition of Radio Greats today. Luke, it's been fantastic being with you. Thank you very much indeed. You've succeeded in doing something which no one else has done. And that is to get me back on a spot with you speaking about myself which i haven't done for years so who knows what you've started so now orchestral maneuvers in the dark and tesla girls nine minutes to six still very much in the dark of course blinking dark out there i can't used to get used to the fact that it gets dark so early now about five o'clock isn't it 5 p.m it gets dark and it'll probably be dark at about seven or eight or nine or ten this morning walking around at a protect Petrally unshaven, looking awful. Because when you're getting up hideously early in the morning, of course, it's very difficult to keep yourself in really good shape, as you probably find. Unless you're out there jogging this morning, and some people are, but you don't really realise it till the summer, because you can't see them till then. Well, thank you very much indeed for all the people who um, took my advice and listened to Radio 1 last week. Because, I mean, frankly, I thought it was incredible. I listened to the early show myself, and I heard my replacement... Mr. Campbell, and I thought that is absolutely unbelievable. He's really did a tremendous job, and I enjoyed listening to it. I heard it one or two days myself. I think he's got a tremendous future, and maybe even doing my job, so I better look out. But very well done indeed. And uh, nice to have you back this morning, back from my week off. Uh, actually, at home, uh, it's a bad situation. We got the power back on about Monday or Tuesday, so that was quite nice, because when you've got the power on, you can have heat as well. Uh, phone is still not working. That does surprise me. The water board, of course, were the first in there. They got that sorted out. The electricity board uh, did their job, as I say, this week or last week. And um, telephone, still no no hope of that, they reckon, for another couple of weeks yet. Mind you, don't miss it a lot. Think of all the money I'll be saving. Tremendous. Seven minutes to six. If you're still in darkness as a result of the hurricane a couple of weeks ago or the floods or any of the other terrible weather conditions we had, I'm sympathetic. Remembering the great DJs of radio, it's Radio Greats with the live Luke.